There is absolutely nothing in this universe that God doesn't have the complete and comprehensive right to rule. And that means that there is nothing that you can bring before God in prayer that isn't under His authority. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does the word doxology mean? And how can a single word or phrase shape the course of your life and actions? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom brings you part 15 of a series titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. As Tom begins to wrap up his study on the Lord's Prayer, as found in Matthew chapter 6, he'll look at why you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, should be encouraged to approach God in prayer, knowing that God is willing to hear your prayers, just as a child's loving father, when his son or daughter speaks and requests things from him, you should find encouragement to pray. But the other thing that encourages you to pray is believing not only that God is willing, but believing that God is able to hear and answer your prayers. Are you convinced that's true? Keep all that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. For the last time, as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to read this magnificent prayer together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then... In this way, our Lord says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In this remarkable prayer, as we have seen, our Lord gave us a model that our prayers should follow. It's a simple prayer composed of three parts. There is, first of all, a preface, our Father who is in heaven. That preface lays out for us the attitudes in which we are to approach God in prayer. The word our reminds us that we come to God as a member of a family and not simply as a loner. Father reminds us that we come as a child to his father who is in heaven tempers that by reminding us that our father is not a normal father. Our father is the king of the universe and therefore we pray as a subject of a king. The second part of this prayer are the petitions. The second part is the petitions. They identify for us six categories of prayer, six kinds of requests that should come from our lips and our hearts. Jesus here teaches us to pray, first of all, for the glory of God. Hallowed be your name. God, may you and everything connected with you be set apart and treated as holy. Our second prayer is for the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come. We're praying for the spiritual kingdom over which Christ rules, that more hearts would come under his rule, that others would come to faith in Christ, in other words. And for those of us who are already in Christ, we're praying that his his rule would expand even in our own hearts and lives. 
into unconquered territories of our souls. And for the physical kingdom, we're praying that that would soon come, his kingdom on earth. The third thing we're taught to pray for here is the will of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer to say, God, help me to accept your sovereign will, your providence, what you bring into my life, but even more so, help me to obey your revealed will as it's contained on the pages of Scripture. We're to pray for the needs of this life. Give us this day our daily bread. We're to pray for everything needed to sustain life in this world. Fifthly, we're to pray for the confession of sin. Forgive us our debts. This is not renewed justification, as our Lord taught us. Uh, We only need one spiritual bath, one ultimate forgiveness at the courtroom of God's justice. This is forgiveness day in and day out, no longer in the courtroom of God's justice, but now in the Father's house as we sin against our Father and need the communion we enjoy with Him to be restored. And then there's the pursuit of holiness. As we've discovered, this last request really has two parts. It is a prayer for spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation. Don't let us be put in any circumstance in which we'll fall and give in to sin. And if we do, don't let us linger there, but pull us out and ultimately deliver us from the evil one and all of his influences. And that is really a prayer for personal holiness. Now today, I want us to look at the third part of this prayer, the conclusion. Look at verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, regardless of what version of the Scriptures you have with you, you probably have that verse footnoted in some way. If you'll look in the margin of your Bible or in the center, you'll see some sort of footnote. In the New American Standard, this is what they've written. This clause not found in the early manuscripts or in the earliest manuscripts. This is one of those few places in Scripture where we can't be absolutely certain if the author wrote these words or not. And by the way, let me just say you can rest in confidence because between the text of Scripture in our translations and the footnotes in the margins, you have the Word of God. Nothing is excluded. No, there are no questions that, that scholars uh, have that are not somewhere in the text you hold answered or addressed. But we can't be absolutely sure if our Lord spoke these words or if Matthew recorded them here or not. The earliest manuscripts, as they say, don't include this conclusion. And Luke, who records a version of the Lord's Prayer from a few months after the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't include a conclusion at all. On the other hand, the majority of the manuscripts we have, although they're later ones, do include this conclusion. And here's a fascinating detail. The earliest outside-of-Scripture Christian document that we possess comes from the end of the, of the first century. It's called the Didache. So this would have been when the apostles were still living, at least the apostle John. And in the Didache, you have a record of the Lord's Prayer, as we have here, and it ends with a conclusion very similar to this one. Now, I'm not going to lead you through all of the the textual arguments and evidence. Let me just summarize it this way. When you weigh the evidence, it is not likely that these words were in the original document Matthew wrote. 
Instead, I think this conclusion was probably added very early and was actually used in the first century churches. That's because they were initially, many of them, Jewish churches. And the Jews ended their prayers with some sort of doxology, some sort of conclusion. They would not have wanted to end this prayer, deliver us from evil. And so they would have, in the public worship of God's people, added some sort of a conclusion or doxology. Now, all of that said, I still think it is legitimate for us to study this conclusion and even for us to use it in our prayers for several reasons. First of all, because it may be original. We just don't know for sure. Secondly, it is biblical for our prayers to have a conclusion, and many of the biblical prayers do. And thirdly, although the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer here may not be original in this place, the, the words, the concepts, and the ideas do occur at other places in Scripture and therefore are inspired concepts. Let me give you, I'll give you several examples as we go along. Let me give you one as we begin. This is from Revelation chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Listen carefully. There's no question about whether or not these words are in the inspired text of the New Testament. Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, so all of intelligent creation, I heard saying this, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So the content, the ideas, the concepts in the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 clearly do appear in other places in the Scripture and therefore are a legitimate way for us to end this prayer and our prayers. Now, what can we learn from the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer? Well, first of all, it reminds us that praise is a crucial part of our prayers. This is a doxology. That simply means words of glory or words of exaltation. It is a, it is a way to give praise to God for who He is and what He has accomplished. And that is an important part of our prayers as well. We are everywhere told to praise God. This conclusion also reinforces our prayers with arguments. Notice how the conclusion begins in verse 13. The little word for. It's the Greek word because. So with these words, we are saying, God, we want you to do what we've asked you to do for these reasons. Here are arguments to give to God as to why we have asked him to do what we've asked him and why we expect that he will. It's not because of our own worthiness. It's not because we deserve to be heard. The basis for our arguments is found only in God, in his character, in what is true about him. There's another benefit to this conclusion, and that is it encourages us to pray. What most encourages us to pray? Well, I think believing that God is willing to hear and answer our prayers encourages us to pray. And that is encouraged in the preface. We know God is willing to hear our prayers because he is our father. But the other thing that encourages us to pray is believing not only that God is willing, but believing that God is able to hear and answer our prayers. And that is encouraged in the conclusion. 
Now look again at verse 13. For yours is. For yours is. That expression speaks of possession. It is an affirmation that these things inherently belong to God and to God alone. We are saying, God, to you belongs these things. They are yours by right. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer provides us with three arguments for God to hear and to answer our prayers, and those arguments are based solely on things that belong to God. Let's look at those arguments together. Here's why God should hear and does hear and answer our prayers. First of all, here's the first argument. God alone has the sovereign right to rule. God alone has the sovereign right to rule. For yours is the kingdom. To God and to God alone belongs the sovereign right to decide whatever happens. The word kingdom can refer to the sphere or the realm over which a king rules. We speak of the the kingdom of Jordan or, or the kingdom of Narnia. But here and in other places... The word kingdom doesn't refer to the realm or the sphere of a king's rule, but to the reality of his rule, to his kingship or his lordship. It refers to the authority or the right to rule. So yours is the kingdom then is a joyful affirmation of God's absolute sovereignty. Yours is the right to rule. This is a note that is sounded throughout the scripture Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Nebuchadnezzar, in those famous words at the end of Daniel 4, puts it this way. He says, God does according to his will in the host of heaven, that is, among the armies of heaven, and he does according to his will among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? A.W. Pink, commenting on the reality that God's sovereign rule cannot be threatened, writes this. Listen carefully to Pink. Were all the denizens of heaven and all the inhabitants of earth to combine in open revolt against him. Stop there and think for a moment. Pink is saying, if in a moment's time, all of the angels, Satan and his demons, and every human being on this planet, along with all who have ever lived or ever will live, if in one moment of time, they all combine together to rebel against God, Listen to what Pink writes. It would cause God no uneasiness. It would have less effect upon his eternal, unassailable throne than the spray of the Mediterranean's waves has upon the towering rocks of Gibraltar. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, it is hard for us living in a republic to appreciate sovereignty. John Locke's idea that government is founded on a social contract gave birth to the American idea of the consent of the governed. In other words, we the people are the real rulers, and we agree to surrender some of our rights to the government 
in order to have certain benefits like law and order. That's why our founding documents speak of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that's wonderful for us and the freedoms we enjoy. But that's not what God's rule is like. He doesn't rule by the consent of the governed. As R.C. Sproul puts it, his reign extends over me whether I voted for him or not. He has absolute, unquestioned sovereignty over everything. Now, why would we say this at the end of a prayer? It's because there is a great encouragement to prayer in this expression. There is absolutely nothing in this universe that God doesn't have the complete and comprehensive right to rule. And that means that there is nothing that you can bring before God in prayer that isn't under His authority, under His right to rule, under His sovereignty, under His control. So there's nothing you can't ask Him about because in the end, it's His. It belongs to Him. He has control of it, and He can decide how it should work out. And so we come to God then saying, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the sovereign right to rule. So do what pleases you in regard to what I have asked. There's a second argument for God to answer our prayers in this conclusion. God alone has the unlimited power to act. God alone has the unlimited power to act. For yours is the power. To God and to God alone belongs the inherent power to do whatever he decides to do. Psalm 62, 11 says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard him say this, that power belongs to God. It's his. Power is solely God's possession. Stephen Charnock, who wrote the wonderful book on the existence and attributes of God, says this, as God's essence is immense, not to be confined in place, as it is eternal, not to be measured in time, so it is almighty, not to be limited in regard of action. You understand that God has the power to do everything that he determined to do? Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. When God decides to do something, there is nothing that can stand in his way of accomplishing it. But God not only has the power to do everything he's determined to do, God has the power to do everything. Jeremiah 32, verse 26. And you understand when I say he has the power to do everything, I mean within the boundaries of his own nature. God's not going to do something contrary to his nature. But if it fits his nature, he has the power to do all things. Jeremiah 32, 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, listen to this, saying, here's God talking. Behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? You know, I feel sorry for those folks who, who even profess to be Christians and they worry and struggle with some of the miracles in the Bible. You know, it's like, I don't know, six days and resurrection? Listen, if there is a God and if he's the God of all flesh, then there is nothing too difficult for him. You settle the issue of whether or not God exists and you've settled everything else. 
God has the power to do everything he determines to do. God has the power to do all things. Here's one. God has the power to do what he chooses not to do. I love what John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. He says, don't, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these rocks, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. God didn't choose to do that. But the point is, God can do even what he chooses not to do. If it's in keeping with his nature, God and God alone has the power to act. Do you understand that your power and my power, to whatever extent we have any, is derived from God? The fact that you can move your arm, that you can move your head, that you will get up and walk out of here at some point, that power is ultimately borrowed from God. Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, in God we live and move and have our being. Again, Pink writes, not a creature in the entire universe has an atom of power except what God delegates. But God's power is different. It is not acquired, nor does it depend upon any recognition by any other authority. It belongs to him inherently. To God belongs the power. You see, only God can cause his name to be hallowed. Only he can ensure that his kingdom comes and that his will is done. Only God can give us our daily bread, forgive our sins, protect us spiritually from harm, and cause us to grow in holiness. That's why we ask him. That's why we pray these things, because yours is the power and not mine. Sometimes we ask God for hard things, things that seem to us to be almost impossible to be accomplished. Things like the salvation of someone that we know and love, but who seems cold and hard-hearted and rebellious the provision of a job in, in terrible financial times, the provision for a spouse when it doesn't seem likely, or, or the strength to overcome a habit or a temptation. We pray those things, but frankly, sometimes it seems like they're, they're impossible. Understand this, there is no limit to God's power. He can do everything He decides to do. Sometimes it's hard for us to see how God can cause his name to be honored in certain situations. It seems unlikely to us that in the lives of some people, his will will ever be done. Sometimes we find ourselves in desperate situations where we wonder if he can really meet our physical needs. Or perhaps we've sinned so horribly that we wonder if even God can forgive us. Or maybe we feel spiritually vulnerable, exposed, and weak, and we wonder if we'll ever really be able to stand, if we'll ever really be truly holy. Listen, when we pray, yours is the power, we are reminding ourselves and we are reminding God that to Him alone belongs the inherent power to do anything He chooses to do. Is there anything, God says, too difficult for me? Yours is the power. The third argument for God's answering our prayers is that God alone is the ultimate reason to live. God alone is the ultimate reason to live, for yours is the glory. To God and to God alone belongs the sole reason to exist for everything that is. 
Romans chapter 11, verse, verse 36 says, from him, that is God made or created all things, and through him, that is God sustains all things that he made, and to him, that is God is the end or the goal or the purpose for which all things exist, to him be the glory forever. Amen. God's glory is the ultimate end of everything. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 15 of his series, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Tom will conclude his series with part 16 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces the Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.